Uh, good morning. Just a, uh, a reminder that tomorrow evening we'll have uh, evening worship. Usually it's on uh, the third Wednesday, but uh, there was a conflict. So uh, tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening, in the chapel at 8 o'clock, Julian is going to be leading. So uh, please come out for uh, a time of corporate um, worship. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Dr. Dan Doriani is a professor. He's a vice president at Covenant Seminary. He is an author, um, a speaker, um, and he is a friend of the college. And he's become a friend of mine. So please, uh, a warm Scots welcome for Dr. Dan Doriani. Good to be back and to uh, see a number of you who are familiar faces. Uh, last time I was here, there was a foot of snow. This time there is a uh, raging forest fire. So if you want to keep things calm, don't invite me back for a while. It's good to be here and um, to speak in a place where there's a thousand people and the farthest one away is 85 feet. That's really nice from here. 2010, a man named Cardinal George of Chicago said this. Maybe you've heard it. He said, I expect to die in my bed as a Catholic leader. I expect my successor to die in prison. I expect his successor to die in the flames. And I expect his successor to pick up the shards of Western civilization and rebuild as the church has so often done. So that's, uh, that's the way one person viewed the trends in our country and maybe in the West right now. He saw a church declining. Jesus says something pretty different. Uh, not that he disagrees with Cardinal George. I think what he said is actually perhaps uh, brilliantly prophetic. But Jesus said something about the longer view. And it's found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. And this is what he said. This is what Matthew says. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for building your church and for promising us that you would do so. I pray that in a day when it's possible to consider dying for our faith, we remember that the faith that you live forever. Help us, we pray, to live in light of that in our age. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about the foundation of the church, which we just read about, and then the challenges of the church, and then third, the mission of the church. So the, the foundation of the church is very simple. It's described here in our passage, Jesus has been with his disciples at this moment in Matthew 4, getting close to two years. They've heard him, they've seen him, they've seen the miracles, the controversies, and he's decided it's time to pull aside, to be alone with them in the farthest reaches to the uninhabited north of Israel. 
And he wants to make sure they know who he is, and therefore who they are and what their mission is. But instead of giving a lecture, we might say he starts a seminar with a question, what do people say about me? And the answer that the disciples give is, shall we say the kind answer? Because some people said he was an evil man in allegiance with the devil, but they give the happier answer. You're one of the prophets. You're a great teacher. You are um, someone who explains the way of God. You are maybe like John the Baptist, a, a moral, social reformer. That's what people say. Now, if people said that about one of you, that you're a prophet, you would probably be astonished with the praise. But Jesus wasn't taken in by this. Instead, he said to them, okay, that's fine. Yeah, that's a good report. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, who's, you know, the spokesman for the 12, so often says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you've grown up in church, and I know a lot of you have, this is so familiar, you can kind of skip over it. So let me just label it. You're the Christ means you're the one who's appointed and anointed by God for sacred tasks. In the Old Testament, three people, three kinds of tasks or offices uh, were anointed by God. Not every time, but prophets, priests, and kings. So when, when Peter says you are the Christ, he is saying you're the one who's anointed for the task of presenting God's word in this age to our people, and you are the priest. The priests deal tenderly with people and care for people, but they also offer sacrifices to cover sins. And kings were also anointed to defend the nation, to propound and defend just laws. You are the Christ. Now all of that, a prophet, priest, and king, could be true of a human. And so Peter goes on to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And everybody knows Jesus is a man. They ate, they drank, he fell asleep in boats with them. They got hungry together, thirsty together, slept on the ground together. They know he's a man. Peter also knows you're the son, not a son, the son of the living God. And Peter says that's absolutely right. Peter, sorry, Jesus says that's absolutely right, and that is the rock of the church. Now, we have to be careful to understand um, Peter himself is not the rock of the church. I so say, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. There's a difference between Peter and the rock. Jesus himself is the rock, and he's the cornerstone, the foundation stone of the church. But when Peter rightly confesses Christ, that's foundational. In fact, to this day, when you and I rightly confess Christ, that is still the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation. We have foundational responsibilities and privileges. And then Jesus says something, again, that's familiar, but perhaps misconstrued. He says, um, I'm going to build my church. That's clear, but we don't always see that today. And he also says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when I grew up in the Christian faith, people would kind of quote this, and they would quote it as a statement about the defenses of the church. That is to say, the forces of evil will never crush the church, which is true. That's a true statement, but that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is the gates, that is to say the defensive weapons of the world will not prevail. If the gates of hell don't prevail against the church, it means, the, it means hell will not stop the advance of the church, right? He's building, 
and he's advancing. It doesn't feel that way right now. Uh, if you went to a secular high school, probably people, some of your friends and neighbors wondered what on earth you would want to do a thing like go to a Christian college on top of a mountain for. Why would you do that? Because the tide right now is against evangelical Christianity, at least so it seems in America and in Europe in the West. But it isn't that way everywhere. The church is growing in Asia, most of Africa, most of South America. I was just in Singapore three weeks ago, uh, not for the first time. Singapore is an island nation, has about six million people in it, uh, very small geographical borders. It's probably the most diverse nation on earth. The people there are Chinese and they're Malays and Indonesians and Indians and so forth, and they speak four main languages and three other languages are spoken by lots of people so it's culturally diverse, ethnically diverse, and it's also uh, diverse religiously. Buddhism is the main religion, close to half of all the people. There's also Muslims, Sikhs, and Hindus, and Christians. Christians are now about almost 20% of the church. So when I was there, it's a small country, I said, I'm going to go to all the temples and the places of worship, as well as the churches in which I spoke, and uh, I went to a colorful mosque in sort of the historic district. And as a Christian, you're not allowed in a mosque. You can watch people come out or go in. And as I watched them come out, I noticed how um, unhappy, I don't know what other word to use, uh, unhappy the people were. In fact, I started looking for a smile as hundreds of people came out. And I finally found at the very end one person, exactly one person with a big, clear smile. And I thought, well, I guess that makes sense because, you know, Islam says do and do. There's no gospel there. And then that's not far from a Hindu temple, and I was there uh, twice, actually, both times right after one of their big festivals where they do things like walk on coals, hot coals in their bare feet, and, and lash themselves with whips. Uh, so I just barely missed the festivals, and the place was empty, but you could still see literally idols everywhere. I mean, everywhere, including Kali, if you know the old Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's actually a mild version of Kali. They softened it for the movie. Kali is the devourer, the destroyer, the agent of death. And she's more prominent than any other deity. And then over to a, a Buddhist temple, and I happened to be there on one of their big holy days. You can look it up. It's called the, the Temple of the Sacred Tooth. And it's one of those magnificent, um, curling, curved buildings you see that have, you know, the Chinese and, and Korean architecture with the lacquered wood, and it's magnificent. And because it was a holy day, um, there were sacrifices being offered for the dead to help people get out of hell. And people would bring sacrifices, which were not um, anything real elaborate. They would just bring a grain sacrifice and hand it to a priest who was magnificently robed in, in uh, crimson and saffron and had a uh, you know, tonsured head with one plume of hair kind of dangling as he moved around. And they would, they would give him these bags of grain, and he would throw them on a, on a sacred fire that looked a lot like the images you see of, of altars in the Old Testament. And they had little bits of, of fireworks in them. So as the as the bag of grain caught fire, there'd be sparks of you know, green and purple and blue and, and orange wafting up to the heavens. 
And he was, you know, very, he was well chosen. He was kind of like dancing around. I'm not going to try to do what he did. But um, kind of moving very, like he was in a ballet as he did this. It was quite a show. You go inside, and then there are images of Buddha, a, a golden image of Buddha, maybe 30 feet tall. And thousands of images of Buddha, also gold, on the sides, and the monks and the people chanting. And then you leave that area, and you go to the next place, and you can buy guardian deities. These guardian deities are, are on sale for $88.88. And the reason is that eight is a propitious number, a happy number. And if you spend $88.88, a guardian deity will give you long life, wisdom, and prosperity all your days for $88, which is a bargain. And yet, people weren't buying them because they didn't buy it. And then you leave that area and you go to an area with these you know, fierce, nine-foot-tall images of warriors and you're reminded that Buddhism is a syncretistic religion and they believe in ancestral deities and warrior gods that will protect them alongside the Buddha. All three of these religions have one thing in common, and that is they have flagellant movements. You know what that means? Self-flagellation. It means, it means devoted ones beat themselves bloody with whips. And if you think about it, the reason is pretty clear. They believe there is a god. They believe they've done something wrong. And they believe that the gods will punish them, especially Kali, who loves to devour human flesh. The gods will punish them unless they punish themselves first. And then if the gods see their, their blood, they'll say, oh, I don't have to lash them. They've already taken care of it. That's the idea. Now, what's interesting is that in the West, uh, these ideas, ideas of atonement, substitutionary atonement, are considered to be uh, foolish. And, of course, we would respect other religions who practice that. In America today, in Western Europe, the idea of penal substitution, that someone else would, punish, would be punished for my sins, is considered barbaric. In the West today, people might even say, that makes more sense than Christianity, in which somebody else pays. Now, what I would say to my friends, secular friends, is actually the notion of substitution is alive and well. Anytime somebody else pays another person's debt, that's substitution. By the way, your parents are paying the price for your education. They're substituting. They're paying for you. That's a substitution. I don't know if you've heard, there's an obscure um, book and movie called The Hunger Games. Anybody ever hear of that? So in The Hunger Games, if you know the story, it's actually based on penal substitution, right? Because the districts have rebelled against the capital, and as punishment, each district has to send up two tributes, right? A boy and a girl, age 12 to 18, drawn by lot. They're going to fight to the death. 23 of the 24 will die all on TV for the entertainment and warning of other people. And you remember little Primrose Everdeen is 12 years old and her name is drawn. Everybody knows she's going to die. And so her sister, what's her name? I keep, I forget. Thank you. Her sister says, I will substitute. Now, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but she might not actually die for her sister. (laughs) 
the whole series, which has taken in well over a billion dollars, rests on penal substitution. And so people have a hard time completely getting away from biblical truth, don't they? Now, of course, what this is pointing to, whether the authors of Hunger Games meant it or not, is the principle of substitution, which is first and last performed by Jesus Christ as he bore the price, the penalty for our sins in his person. He died the death that we deserve and rose to give us the life we don't deserve. That's what Christianity teaches. In Singapore, the people seeing other religions, the pastors, get how unusual and powerful this message is. In Singapore, the average pastor I talked to, I met about 50, maybe 70, the average pastor, so far as I can tell, takes seven or eight mission trips a year because they've already learned three or four languages. They think, what's one or two more? And they've got great airports, and they live within a five-hour flight of two and a half billion people. And they go, game on. Let's go. Here we are. Now, that's elsewhere. Here in America, there's a challenge. And the challenge is that we live in what we call a secular age. And you can see this in all kinds of ways. You can see it, for example, in things like the, um, the fact that over 40% of all children, all children are born outside of wedlock today. Not first children, all children. Um, and you can see it in the way you have conversations with your secular friends. You say, uh, let's talk, and you find you, it's difficult to even agree on language about what God and sin mean. Maybe get a, in contact with a secular friend, and you say, you know, don't you want to live forever? And they say things like, no, actually, you know, I, I think 80 years is plenty. And don't you want forgiveness for your sins? And they go, um, if you forgive me of my sins and I forgive myself, that's more than enough. I don't, I don't believe that God needs to do anything for me. Now, the word secular has three meanings. And when we say it's a secular age, meaning one is one you guys don't have to worry about. Meaning one is this. There is sacred work like what I do, and priests and monks and missionaries do. And there's secular work, which is what salespeople and chemists and engineers do. And you all go to Covenant College, you know that's ridiculous. All work that's offered to the Lord is sacred, so don't worry about that one. Number two, however, goes like this. We live in a secular society, meaning we live in a society in which religion is excluded from the public square. So in my uh, town, I live in St. Louis, pretty conservative place, thank you, um, pretty conservative place. In St. Louis, there was in my school district a discussion as to whether 12 and 13-year-olds should or should not be instructed on the uh, beauties of the option of the transgender life. And I was invited to uh, write to the school board, and I had to make a decision. Would I write as an ordained minister, professor at a seminary, and quote the Bible and see my note dropped in the bin, or would I write as an ethicist and offer scientific evidence for the harm of introducing these ideas at this time to everybody in seventh grade? What do you think I did? I did number two. And they took my letter seriously. Not that they sided with me, but they read it. And they discussed it. Because I didn't quote the Bible. That's what it means to live in a secular society. 
The third meaning of a secular society, which I alluded to a moment ago, is um, if you're a Christian, people kind of wonder why that might be. For almost all of human history, to believe in God was the norm, and if you were an atheist, you better have an answer for yourself. Today, to be a Christian, you probably need to have an answer. You have to be able to defend yourself. You didn't vote for Trump, did you? You better have an answer for that question. At a college campus, Covenant College, very different from other schools, one of the most famous graduation dresses ever given was by Stephen Jobs, 2005, Stanford. And the core statement he made is a, is a brilliant summary of what it means to be secular. He said this to the Stanford grads. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other people's opinions drown out your own inner voice. Have the courage to follow your heart, endlessly repeated phrase, and intuition. They somehow already know who you want to be. And what that means then is, if you have your heart and your intuition and your desires, you don't need the Bible. The revelation is not from outside, it's from inside. Study yourself enough and you will know what to do. Study your passions, your dreams, your desires, and it will lead you to the truth for you. Now, Christianity in that environment is not always welcome, and the, the reason is simple. Christianity says sometimes, thou shalt not. It says, I know what you think you desire, and you may even think that no one's going to be hurt by this, but God says no to that. And that feels oppressive to a lot of secular people. How can you tell me that I can't follow my own heart? And the short answer that, that you explore here in other chapels other time. The short answer is, uh, we just don't know enough to know what will hurt and what won't. Like secondhand smoke, you know, 50 years ago, everybody thought, well, I smoke, but I do it outside, or I smoke, but my wife doesn't. It doesn't hurt my kids, right? Well, then we found out about secondhand smoke and how it can kill you. And people say, cohabitation, what's the harm? Well, the harm is, if you cohabit before you get married, whether you knew it or not, the chances of getting divorced after you get married is 47% higher. And study after study after study reveals that. So your intuition that I should just do what I want can actually hurt you and other people. And God's standard says that. And secular people say, I, I don't like it when you tell me I can't do what I want. When you tell me I can't follow my dreams. So to be a Christian is, is to have to be willing to say there's a revelation from the outside, and sometimes it says no. Now, the better news is it tells us we don't have to flagellate ourselves. One of the most interesting things is when the gospel is lost in the 13th, 14th, early 15th, 15th century, self-flagellant movements arose within Christendom. Everybody knows there's something wrong. Everybody knows we owe a debt. Everybody knows a price has to be paid. The good news is God will forgive you 
Here's, here's what Christianity says. If you believe in Christ, if you follow the Lord, you are in God's family. And the family has this principle. We have standards, which means sometimes you can't. But we also celebrate grace. If you, if you grew up in a good home, you know this. And if you were in a bad home and you knew good homes, you know this is the standard. We celebrate grace and we have rules, both. That's the way it is in the human family. It's the way it is in God's family. And so the question is, will you be faithful yourself to this magnificent message that is going across the world, even though it's not very popular right now? I don't know if you know the name Annie Dillard. She's uh, a writer, Christian writer, who lived part of her life off the West Coast. She lived in an island, on an island, about 50 miles off the coast of Washington, an island that was filled with sur uh, survivalists and artists and writers. And one day she was talking to a friend of hers named Paul, and she said, Paul, how's your painting going? And instead of answering the question, Paul said, do you know the story of Farrar Byrne? She said, I don't. He said, let me tell you. Farrar, a survivalist, was sitting on the beach one day and an Alaskan cedar floated down, very valuable piece of wood, and people scavenged those logs commonly, and he went out to get it. People usually go with a motorboat because the tides are strong, but he had his rowboat right there. He, he thought it was safe, high tide, tide's going to turn a little while, I'm going to row it, get it, bring it back, but the tide turned. And he was that far from the beach, but the tide started pulling him away, pulling him south through the islands, and he's rowing north and going south. This happened at just about 6 p.m. at night. He started to, to go south, and he's, he's rowing north as hard as he can and going fast to the south. He rowed until sunset, and by sunset, he was all the way at the southern tip of his island. He kept rowing north and going south. At midnight, the moon came up and he saw where he was. He was out on the vast channel between his island and the next large island to the south. He was still rowing north and going south. Finally, the tide turned. It clearly turned, the account says, at 3 a.m. when it first started to get light. He was now almost to the middle of the next island, still rowing north and going south, but now the tide turned. And he said, now the tide is carrying me along like a platter, rushing me northward. I'm past island one, it's three, it's four, it's five. I'm past the channel. I'm to my own island by sunrise. And by eight in the morning, he's back home. And his wife, June, was waiting for him, wondering where he might have been. Paul said, I saw him a couple days later. He said his back was a little sore but he didn't show me his hands. And Paul said to Annie, so that's how it's going. And Annie said, what? He said, yeah, that's how my work's going. I'm, I'm going south fast, but I'm still rowing north. I believe the tide's going to turn. I'm still rowing. Now, you know what I'm saying to you. The tide is against us. We have to say that. We have to understand that. We have to believe that. We have to say, the tide is pulling me away from home. But I believe there is a home. I believe I want to go there. 
and I'm going to row north until that tide turns, even if it never turns in my lifetime. Even if I live my whole life and only my children's children see the tide finally turn, I believe that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And I want to be able to say, I finished the course, I fought the good fight with Christ and my friends. Let's pray for a minute. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would say with Paul that we always thank God for the faith of which we've heard, the faith that's bearing fruit in the whole world and increasing even as it does among us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, we are not the Lord of the church. You are, and you have promised, you have good, you've given us good reason to believe that you will build your church and care for us and care for your mission in this world here and throughout the globe for the goodness of mankind and for the glory due to your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.